Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Come and overrule and overwhelm. Overrule and overwhelm my mouth and my words, our ears, ears and our hearing, so that what is said and what is heard this morning from the Word of God is for the good of God's people and for God's greater glory. Holy Spirit, we are dependent upon you and what you will do, can do, what only you can do through the hearing of God's word. So come, we pray, and be at work. Build us up and encourage us. Call us to repentance that we may receive forgiveness. Form us more and more into the image of Jesus that we may bring him glory and honor and praise. And do this for the purpose of mission. Not only may we be more transformed into the image of Jesus, but may we be used by Jesus to proclaim his greatness and his glory to the world around us. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So since sometime in August, actually I think it was the first Sunday in August, we've been in this sermon series, extended sermon series about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And not too long ago, a few weeks ago, we transitioned from talking about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life and the ministry of Jesus to talk about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. And as we've been discussing the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, God's gathered people in Jesus through the Spirit We've looked at Acts chapter 2, verse 42, very specifically to say, what are some characteristics of a spirit-filled church? What should a church look like or be or do? And in those last few weeks that we've been together preaching in phaseology, we've, we've seen that there are commonalities, things that the people of the church gathered have in common Together, There's a common devotion to the apostles' teaching, the whole counsel of God, all of Scripture. There's a devotion, a commitment to life together, to fellowship. We see that there is, as we will see in uh, future sermons, there is a focus upon the sacrament, the Lord's Supper. There's also focus upon prayer. Well, this morning, what I'd like to do is, is take a, a more of a general perspective on Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and here see that these four things, these four objects of devotion, are not just about life out in the world, but are actually part of what the church does together when it's gathered together, that is to say, when we worship together. So Acts chapter 2, verse 42, I believe these are things that are aspects of the worship of the church together. One uh, commentator by the name of Howard Marshall calls these four things, this devotion to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, he calls them four essential elements in the religious practice of the Christian church. And so when we gather together on the Lord's Day, on Sunday morning, as we gather in the name of Jesus to worship God, these things should be present. What I'd like to do this morning is call our attention to what I think is just a simple big idea. God's people gathered in Jesus through the Holy Spirit are to worship the God 
of their redemption. And this morning, what I'd like to do is, is simply take a look at what worship is in general, defining the question, what is worship? I'd like to take a look at the parts or the pieces of worship. Specifically, we'll talk about the role of music this morning, and then we will make some application as we consider this. God's people gathered in Jesus through the Holy Spirit are to worship the God of their redemption. As we think about what worship is, as we try to define worship, the, the first thing that we really have to say is that worship starts with God. Worship is all about God. It begins with God. God is the middle of worship. God is the end of worship. All of worship from beginning to end is about God. As we sing, come Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. As we enter into God's presence through the processional, at the end of the service, we'll be sent out in the presence of God to be mission and missionaries, everything in between. All of worship, even the announcements, are about God. But what is worship? Sometimes it helps us to try to define a thing by trying to understand the activities within the thing. And so we talk about worship. Well, worship is first magnifying and exalting God. In Psalm 34, David wrote this little bit of poetry, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. He's calling his audience, he's calling his brothers and his sisters into the worship of the Lord by calling them to magnify or exalt God. Magnifying is making much of God. Think about what a magnifying glass does. You hold it up, not holding it up into the sun to burn ants, right? Whoever did that, holding it up to read, right? What does a magnifying glass do? It makes something bigger. Magnifying makes things bigger. We exalt God. We, we magnify Him. We make a big deal of Him. We, we exalt Him. That really just means that we're bragging about who God is. We're boasting about what God has done in worship. We make much of God. We also, in worship, praise the Lord. That's a second little word that comes from Psalm 150. Again, the psalmist calls a people into togetherness to praise the Lord. And praise really is just a fancy word that means to celebrate, to joyfully celebrate something or someone. And when we are called to praise the Lord, we're called to celebrate with joy the Lord. Why? Because He's God. We're called to celebrate with joy the Lord. Why? Because of what He has done. Worship is the joyful celebration of God. It is the magnification of who He is. It is the exaltation of what He has done. Worship is all about God. And then there's that word itself, worship. That's our final word to consider this morning. It comes from Revelation chapter 4. And in Revelation chapter 4, John is caught up in this heavenly vision into the heavenly throne room. And there is one seated upon the throne. And there is a group of elders around the throne. And they are casting their crowns before him. And they are worshiping the one seated upon the throne. Worship is all about submission. Worship is all about recognition that the object of worship is greater than the worshiper. It actually means, the word itself means something like leaning toward 
or bowing down to. In one particular context, this word worship actually means a dog licking the hand of a master. So worship is God's people coming together to recognize that He is God in submission to Him, to magnify Him, to exalt, to boast, to brag about Him, to celebrate with joy Him. And we think about worship, maybe it's helpful to think about an illustration. You ever noticed how hard it is sometimes to get somebody to stop talking about their favorite college football team? <laughs> Especially when they're winning. And they use that royal we, right? They brag about the excellency of the quarterback and the passes that he makes, and yet he uses that royal we, we won. That's worship in a real sense. You're submitting the, into the authority of the one you're worshiping over you. It's dictating your life and the way you live what you believe. You're magnifying and exalting the person or the being. You're exalting, you're boasting in the accomplishments of that one, and you're doing it all with joy. You're doing it all with joy. That's worship. That's worship. And so these words from the Bible help us to see that worship of the triune God is first recognizing and acknowledging that God is God. It is boasting and exalting about God's person, who he is, holy, infinite in character, infinite in being, perfect in purpose and mission, perfect in his existence. It's also boasting and exalting about what he has done. Worship is celebration of God's being. It is celebration of God's character and his action. The worship of God then primarily is all about God because it's focused on God because God is the content of the worship and it is actually done on God's terms. Anglican David Peterson, a pastor in the Church of England, he defines worship as an engagement with God on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. Folks, we have to understand that the reason why we ever gather together to worship God is because of what God has done in the first place. It takes place because of God's initiative. The worship of God is a response to God's initiative. God's the beginning point of worship as God forms a people to worship Him. And we, we think about this through the line of the Scripture, sort of, sort of this idea of reading Scripture with the lenses of worship, we begin to understand that humanity, in Genesis chapter 1, humanity was created for relationship with God. Humanity was created even more than that to worship God. As our Presbyterian brothers and sisters like to, rep uh, to repeat from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the chief end of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But because of sin, however, this relationship of worship has been interrupted. Not just interrupted, but broken. But that doesn't stop God or His desire, His right desire to receive worship from His creation. And so God, in the storyline of Scripture, the true story of history, God redeems people in order to create for Himself a people who do what? 
worship him. When Moses demanded that Pharaoh let God's people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt, what does he say to Pharaoh? It's for the purpose of worshiping him, God. And as we heard in our gospel reading from John chapter 4 this morning, worship is such a priority for God that he actively seeks us, he actively seeks sinners to become his worshipers. And what does he do? We can read the incarnation of the eternal Son of God in the person of Jesus Christ through the lenses of worship, and we start to understand that one of the greatest benefits of Christ's coming, one of the greatest benefits of Christ's bloody death upon the cross, his glorious resurrection, and his powerful ascension is not simply the forgiveness of sin and the bestowal of eternal life. No, one of the greatest benefits of faith in Jesus is the restoration of right relationship to God, the right relationship of worship. The worship in spirit and truth that Jesus talks about in John 4 can only take place because of him, because of Jesus. The worship that Jesus talks about, the worship of sp in spirit and truth, can only occur because Jesus, the crucified, risen, and ascended Savior, restores us to the Father. He atones for us. He has propitiation upon the cross. Yes, that our sins might be forgiven, but that we might come back into relationship with the Father as sons and daughters through the Son in the Holy Spirit and offer worship. God rescues His people out of their slavery to sin and death. He forms the people for Himself and for His worship. He does this through Jesus, the crucified, risen, and ascended Savior, and through the descended Holy Spirit. And so the, the gospel itself becomes the foundation for our worship and the content of our worship because God forms worshipers. Worship, then, is the response of God's people gathered through Jesus in the Holy Spirit to God, their Redeemer, as He is the focus of attention. We need to hear sometimes words that are startling, startlingly clear and sometimes even abrasive. Author James Gilmore offers just such words when he says, God is the audience of worship. What you get is, quite frankly, irrelevant as a starting point. Worship starts with God. He has acted, and we respond. God speaks, we listen. God gives grace, we receive. God is, and so we boast in Him. God creates, and so we brag about Him. God redeems, and so we celebrate with joy Him and His action. As we gather to worship God, we do so as active respondents to God's grace. We do so to offer a thanksgiving, a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise. We do so to focus our attention on the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because worship is all about Him. God's people gathered in Jesus through the Holy Spirit are to worship the God of their redemption. But what does it look like? Are we free just to make it up as we go along? That would be a problem. If we just made it up as we go along, we'd turn into the Burning Man. You guys know what that is, right? This weird festival in the desert where just about anything goes? No, the, 
In fact, we are not free just to make it up as we go along. There are bones of worship and there is muscle of worship, and those are found in Scripture. And so the object of devotion of Acts chapter 2, verse 42, I believe, are the bones of worship. The Word of God, the prayers, including confession, and the celebration of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, those provide structural integrity. Without these things, there is no worship in the biblical sense. And so fellowship is expressed as the gathering of believers worship together by hearing the Word of God, offering prayers to God, receiving grace from God in the sacraments. We've already talked about the important role of Scripture. In the next few weeks, we'll talk about the prayers and we'll talk about the sacraments. This morning, I want us to draw our attention to a key aspect, a key component of biblical worship that's not specifically mentioned in this text, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and that is corporate singing. The singing of worship is the muscle. Singing together is the ligament that holds the bones of worship together. And together, taken together, the bones and the muscle and the ligaments all make up the whole of the thing, of worship itself. And singing within worship is absolutely biblical. In Ephesians chapter 5, St. Paul writes, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And singing together is one of those parts of worship that can really serve to unite the body. Even those of us who, like me, are chronically out of tune, don't even know what key we're not singing in, those of us who really count on that little bit of Scripture that says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, even we are caught up together in worshiping our Lord through song. And if we pay attention to what St. Paul says, it isn't just to God that we're singing, we're actually singing to one another as we sing in worship. That's what he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's unfortunate then that what is to be a means of unifying can often be a means of division. You see, in the 2,000-year history of the church, music, and especially instruments in music, in worship, has always been a point of controversy. Did you know, for example, that congregational singing was completely banned in the church in the 4th century? Did you know that? As a response to the Arian heresy, Arius is a heretic, false teacher. He was really good at crafting cute little songs to progress and pass along his, his heretical teaching. So the church just banned singing altogether. They threw the baby out with the bathwater, perhaps, but... The desire was to avoid using secular tunes and instruments with pagan associations, and so the church council simply put a full stop to it. Over the next few centuries, chanting was done by monks. Chanting was done by clergy. Choirs did develop, but it really wasn't until the work of the Reformation in the 16th century that musical accompaniment to congregational singing and congregational singing itself began to slowly, with no little tension and anxiety, be welcomed into worship. Can you imagine anyone objecting to Isaac Watts' majestic song, Joy to the World? Anybody? Can anybody imagine? Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Right? You know that song. That's a beautiful song. Did you know that it was offensive 
because it was considered to be too contemporary and had a non-traditional melodic line that even his own family rejected. And while in recent decades, guitars seem to have been the focus of attention, it wasn't always that way. Can you imagine a church turning down the gift of an organ? Can you imagine that? No, No, they did in 1713 in New England because they reasoned if organs were allowed to be used in church worship, other instruments were sure to follow, and that would lead to dancing fantastic, right? All right, what's the point of me saying all this? It's just this, right? Far too often in church history, the church is focused on how the singing is done rather than the fact that singing is being done. And I think it needs to be the other way around. We need to focus on the fact that we are singing to one another and to the Lord. I'm convinced that the key is seeing where God has blessed the local congregation and then freeing those so blessed to exercise their gifts and their talents Worshiping God through those gifts and talents while leading those in the congregation into worship through song. In my own life and ministry, I've been around churches as a, as a pastor in some capacity since the year 2000. It's almost 20 years. It's almost half my life. But in my 20 years of life and ministry, I have been a part of churches in which singing was accompanied by organ, piano, acoustic guitar, a full band, and an electronic hymn machine. It is exactly what it sounds like. It's this little box that has a digital database of hymns, and you had to program in what you were going to sing, and then you had to set the tempo, which was impossible to do. And so every song that I programmed into this little box was either a funeral dirge, or it was uh, moving at the speed of Alvin and the Chipmunks. But worship occurred nonetheless. Here at Emmanuel, in our history since 1928, we have been incredibly blessed with musical leadership. We need to celebrate it. We have and have now men and women who bless us with their voices, with their trumpets, with their trombones, with their pianos, with their organs, with their acoustic and electric guitars, with their drums, with their bass guitars. I've heard the stories about John and Tater, Tater on the saxophone and John on the keyboard. I've heard the stories. It's amazing. We need to celebrate that. And folks, if we had someone who played the theremin or the diggery-doo or the kazoo, we would find a place for them in our worship. It's perfectly fine to have personal preferences in musical style, but when it comes to corporate worship through song, we need to be flexible as we recognize that God is the artist who has created different people with different skills and gifts and who is the ultimate composer being glorified as his gathered people lift a song of praise. We should hear and consider just a bit more of what St. Paul has written, this time from Philippians chapter 2. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And again, just after he writes about singing toward one another in Ephesians 5, St. Paul adds, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is commitment to the fellowship in the context of worship. One pastor once quipped, our church's philosophy of worship is to make sure in every service that there's something to offend everyone. <laughs> and so it is. Perhaps this week we'll sing a song or use instruments that some of us don't prefer. But if that happens, take a look around and see if the body is at worship. And don't worry, next week someone else will have to do the same thing because we're going to break out kazoos. I'm kidding. 
Worship then is God's people gathered together in Jesus through the Holy Spirit, engaging with God on God's terms to magnify God, to exalt God's majestic and glorious being. Worship is the praising of God and retelling the great story of redemption in Jesus Christ. It is celebrating the tokens of the Holy Spirit as it is a looking forward to God's kingdom to come. And so God's people gathered in Jesus through the Holy Spirit are to worship the God of their redemption in word, in prayer, in sacrament, and in song. That's great, you may be thinking to yourself, or, or perhaps you're not. Those are nice words, Father Caleb, but what difference does it make? Why should we bother with worship at all? We have a couple of reasons to bother with worship at all, and the final application is really this be part of a worshiping body. But the first thing why we should bother with worship at all is because in Jesus Christ, there is a restoral of the creational intent. Because of Jesus, in his bloody cross, through his glorious resurrection, and in his powerful ascension, it is possible now for humanity to know and worship God as was intended in the garden, as will be in the new heavens and the new earth. We can now, because of Jesus, we can now, we get to worship our Creator and worship our Redeemer. Because of Jesus, we have the restoration of that creational intent, the true humanity of being in relationship with God. We can worship Him. Gathering together for corporate worship also is a matter of a believer's obedient response to the one who has redeemed us. God expects us to gather as a group to worship Him. We heard that encouragement in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. God's people gathered together in Jesus, in the Holy Spirit, are called to give Father, Son, and Spirit the glory, honor, and praise that is their due. We are called to magnify God. It's a response of obedience to the grace that God has given us. Worship is about God. Worship is for God. Worship is centered on God. And if this was all that worship was, this would be enough. But there's more. In God's kindness, in God's love, in His grace, in His mercy, that which He calls us to is for our good as He is at work in the midst of our worship to form us, to inform us, and to transform us. Corporate worship forms us as a people. If you really think about it, the Sunday morning gathering of a people, of a body of believers in Jesus, is a political statement to the rest of the world. We are claiming before the rest of the world and to one another that the king that we serve is the king of all creation, the redeemer, the one who sits upon the throne. We are proclaiming that our allegiance is to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we come together as God's people to be formed, united, closer together as God's people. We hear God's word together. We offer our prayers together. We receive God's grace in the Lord's Supper together. We sing together. Worship forms us as God's people, as God's family, as a holy nation, a priesthood of believers, as God's own, ones who were not a people but are now 
God's people. Worship positively works within us to form us into the image of Christ as it works against all those other things that seek to form us or split us apart. Worship forms us in the midst of our differing ages, in the midst of our personal histories, our our political affiliations and voting records. Worship forms us in the midst of our musical preferences and our college football allegiances. Worship forms us into a single body, which in Scripture is called the body of Jesus, the bride of Christ. Worship forms us, but it also informs us. We hear the Word of God proclaimed. We sing words reflecting the truth of the Word. What did we sing this morning? First, come Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And then we sang all creatures of our God and King. Do what? Praise Him. Alleluia. So worship forms us, but it also informs us. We hear the proclamation of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, we are sinners, but yes, in Jesus there's overwhelming and overly abundant grace that we cannot possibly fully understand. We offer our confession of sin, and then we are assured of God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And so our minds are informed by God's truth in worship just as our hearts are transformed by His grace. So in our obedient response and this return to the creational intent, we are formed as a people, we are informed in our faith, and we are transformed because worship is a means of grace. God blesses His people with His presence, His favor, His power for transformation in worship. In our corporate worship, God is present to those who worship Him. And being in the presence of God, one cannot help but be changed as the Holy Spirit is at work. It's got nothing to do with our feelings. It's got everything to do with who God is and what God has promised. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there with you. I don't do math good, but there's three people at that table right over there, so I'm pretty sure Jesus is present by the power of the Holy Spirit right now. I love the way Edmund Clowney puts it when he says that as we worship together, the Pentecost promise is renewed. And so we are transformed. As we are formed into a people, as our faith is informed, we are transformed by God's grace. Worship isn't about our glory, but even then it is for our good. Worship is for our good even while it's not about our glory because the Holy Spirit is at work in worship. He directs our gaze to the Father. He directs our gaze to the Son. He directs our gaze to Himself, the Spirit. As He applies the truth of God's Word, He encourages us. He leads us to repentance, to celebration and thanksgiving. We are brought into the presence of God the Father through the Son in the Spirit, and we respond to God's initiative, His initiative to us, by proclaiming His glory, receiving His grace, and then as worship draws to a close, we are sent out as different people, a people formed, a people informed, a people transformed for God's glory. That is what worship is. It's all about God's glory. Redeemed to worship, we are called to worship as God's people gathered. God's people gathered in Jesus through the Holy Spirit are to worship the God of their redemption. And so let us be a people of worship, not as one more thing that we have to do on a Sunday morning, 
but as the very lifeblood of who we are as Christians, believers in Jesus, redeemed by his grace, restored to a creational intent of relationship of worship, freed now to respond with obedience to the grace given that we may gather to be formed, informed, and transformed, all for God's glory. And I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Holy and gracious God, we do praise you and we give you thanks. Your word is truth because you are truth. And as we gathered here in the name of Jesus this morning, we pray for your presence to be powerfully amongst us. Lord, we have worshipped you in our prayers. We have worshipped you in the preaching of the word. And now we will worship you in song as we prepare to worship you in sacrament. Come and be at work. Magnify and exalt yourself in our eyes. Lift high, Jesus. May we celebrate with joy who you are and what you have done. And may we be a people formed, informed, and transformed by your grace for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and continue our worship this morning.